welcome to the 10th um, episode of the Anatomy Cupboard. This is the last one for this year. Uh, we'll, we pick it up again in the new year with a, a new round of 10 episodes for 2023. This one's entitled The Anatomy of a Pygmy. Anatomy has been populated with very religious men. This might seem a surprise, but for them it must be said that dissection of corpses was a constant miracle, defining and elaborating God's handiwork. But it was also for them a continuous battle against what they might have perceived as dark forces, those who followed the mechanistic philosopher René Descartes, who had likened the internal workings of mankind to that of other animals, and to a finely honed watch. To set the body to its limits, and some had told them, you leave no place for God. A watch with no watchmaker, if you will. It had led the 17th century naturalist Francesco Redi to firmly state his position as a pious dissector. Quote, no other science, he wrote of anatomy, raises him, by which he meant the dissector, raises him so far towards God. I think that I can have it undoubted truth that there has never been an important man in the anatomical profession who is an atheist. Now them's fighting words, even if he's trying to keep both of his feet firmly planted in both camps. But I think it's a practical reason why the devout artist Michelangelo dissected bodies of the dead, but never with great relish, certainly not to the level of depth of his rival Leonardo, when I think might have been reticent to seize the territory from God by dissection. That might be how Michelangelo had felt. But the other, Leonardo, unconcerned with any idea of intelligent design, was sort of totally absorbed by what he could discover in the examination of a corpse. They needed it for the betterment of their art, but they used it for different reasons. Religion and anatomy were, of course, strange bedfellows. Sir William Lawrence, Fellow of the Royal Society, the principal demonstrator of anatomy for the Royal College of Surgeons in England, and a consultant of the Bridewell and Bethlehem Hospital, hospitals in the 1820s was dismissed after he was quoted from a lecture he gave on physiology, zoology and natural history of man in 1822. An immaterial and spiritual being could never have been discovered in the blood and filth of the dissecting room, he was quoted as saying, and it took no one less than the Lord Chancellor John Scott, the first Earl of Eldon, to insist on Lawrence's removal for blasphemy. Our old friend Friedrich Reich had to contend with clerics in his anatomy room, but then again he was an intensely religious anatomist himself. He writes in his Allerberks in the early 18th century as a sort of reminiscential that one day one of his students came to him confused and desperate. He couldn't fathom who was right in the dissection of the human being. Was it Galen or was it Descartes? 
standing close by and listening to the conversation and the blood and filth of this room was the priest Johannes Hornbeek, who enthusiastically interjected that it didn't matter who was right. I believe the Holy Scripture, he shouted. End of story. Enough said. We simply cannot imagine it as then when the dissecting halls were hotbeds of philosophical debate and homes of theological dogma. They were filled with artists and clerics. Now, of course, they're closed and somewhat sterile, enclaves, sanitised, collar studs starched clean and not a philosopher or a theologian in sight. Of course, this kind of detailed examination of a dead body meant that there was a need to define not only what it was to be a human, but who amongst those were the very best of humanity itself. This rather simplistic idea thrust many anatomists into the limelight, as it were, and they used their anatomical measurements of almost any part of the body in virtually every every ethnic group to become the arbiters of race. I think if they had television back then, these anatomists would have been rock stars, a bit like the epidemiologists these days during the COVID pandemic were being interviewed daily. They all seemed to have squeezed out their 15 minutes of fame. But in other words, I think the anatomists of these eras were hot stuff, even though a lot of what they were saying was guff. The anatomists became experts in the developing field of anthropology, defining an ethnic narrative of mankind. And in the face of Charles Darwin's recently released Origin of the Species, which was published in 1859, many anatomists became collectors. And their favourite collection piece was the skull, but they were also collectors of anything and everything that promoted a Caucasian ideal. So there are very large collections of skulls in very special museums, and I suppose on this podcast I'm not going to get into the business of repatriation, the return of these human remains, but it's a very important, perhaps the most important issue around them. The Hurtle collection, for example, of 130 or so skulls that each lies in a labelled wooden box on a little pillow with a complicated notation is one such example now held in the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia. The English surgeon John Hunter's large collection of skulls, part of which you can still see in central London at the Royal College of Surgeons, although it's in renovation until 2023, it orders them from lowly dogs through to what he thought the inferior races, the Celebes and the Mongolians, and then ultimately up to a European ideal. There's also the large collection in Oxford, the Pitt Rivers collection brought together by Augustus Henry Lane Fox Pitt Rivers, a 19th century archaeologist in the British Army that includes a collection of shrunken heads, mostly from the Shuar and Achuar of the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru, and which on the grounds of restoration, but more likely sensitivity, have been removed from public view since the start of the COVID pandemic. And there's also the Samuel Morton collection in Pennsylvania, 900 of which were acquired by the physician Morton in the 1830s and 1840s. There's also, I found, an excellent collection of skulls that was brought together by the pathologist Luigi Calori 
which anyone can see in the main hall of a stately building at the top end of Bologna in Italy. I was visiting a, a friend in biochemistry there and was taken by the corridor of the main building, which sports all of these skulls from Piedmont, Calabria, Sardinia and parts of the United Parts of Italy, actually, uh, 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 before Garibaldi. Calori even has one small shelf there for his suicidi, designed to divine in some way the topographic features of those skulls of people who'd committed suicide. He, like a later anthropologist, Cesare Lombroso, who is featured in uh, the museum in that building, was convinced that just by looking at a skull, one could appreciate the very contours of a criminal, or indeed a suicidal mind. Off-topic but related, Lombroso became obsessed with the idea that the physiognomy could tell the personality. He examined the skull of an Italian serial killer and saw the changes and the impressions of the cerebellum that reminded him of those contours of the inside of the skull of an ape. Criminality, he divined in his most famous book, L'Uomo Delinquente, showed how criminals had therefore regressed to bestial depths, and you could determine this just by looking at the skull. Simple enough theory of nonsense, but it held sway at the same time that that so-called science of phrenology captivated people, and where in London there were so many salons where for a small fee you could get the bumps on your head red. For a short time too, you could visit a metaposcopist who read the lines on your forehead and predicted your behaviour as well as your future. Now, many of these collections still exist. They're the modern-day equivalents of similar collections as those of the Prelector of Anatomy in Amsterdam, Petrus Camper, or the 18th-century German naturalist Johann Friedrich von Blumenbach. And these last two were the sort of bee's knees when it came to racial definition, and they drew the largest crowds wherever they went. Von Blumenbach couldn't bear to be away from his collection of skulls, and when he visited John Hunter in London, he naturally brought the collection with him, very much like those artists who travelled with their little art cupboards there, Kunstschranks as they were called. They couldn't bear to part with them for a moment. Camper too was the master of measurement and devised his facial angle from the tip of the chin to the lobe of the ear that had to be a certain amount, a particular number of degrees, in fact, in order to be considered human. The Asian races, he argued, were stunted with a prominent brow and little cerebral capacity and were thus, on measurement, inferior, according to him. The whole thing made Camper pretty famous and he received honorary chairs of anatomy from Groningen and Franeker universities. Morton spent a lot of his time, too, measuring all the little angles and shelves he could find to produce his book The Crania Egyptica and later his Crania Americana, both books which argued that the Europeans were the most developed races. The naturalist and journalist Stephen Jay Gould reopened this wound in an article in 1976 when he suggested that Morton had unduly and perhaps even subliminally distorted the data 
towards Europeans having larger cranial capacities than Eskimos, as an example. Well, Gould represents the data to show that there isn't really any difference between the races at all. And he writes about it in a book rather beautifully entitled The Mismeasure of Man. But not happy with this Gaulian response, staff of the collection at Pennsylvania's Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, led by Jason Lewis, remeasured over 300 skulls from Morton's original collection. And they argued that Gould had actually gotten it all wrong, that Morton was right. Well, not content there, Michael Weisberg, who's a professor of philosophy at the, uh, of philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania, argues the point as late as 2014, that Gould's analysis of Morton's inherent biases was actually right. Someone examining someone else who examines the way a third person examined the data means even I have trouble understanding what some of this means. Suffice to say that in the quest to examine the savages, that is, those outside Europe, the United States, and the United Kingdom, that's how they defined it. Everything was fair game. The opportunity to desecrate the burial grounds of Native Americans, the Southern Australians and Tasmanians, and of course the Maoris of New Zealand. This was their chance to display these skulls and skeletons alongside their craftwork in the sort of evolutionary narrative that is part of most of the world's ethnography museums. But it was also the kind of story that was part of the natural history collections which might come with lectures and demonstrations of live exhibits, the feral children that had been found in France, the first Tahitians, Ahutoru, Amai and Tupia, who were brought back to show London polite society by the likes of Louis de Bougainville, Tobias Furneaux and Sir Joseph Banks. The kind of precursor to the public shows by Sir Frederick Treves of the Elephant Man. Have a look and marvel at what we found was the mantra, a little bit like Tarzan, Lord Greystoke. In a wonderful book, Inventing Human Science by Notre Dame's Chair of English, Christopher Fox. There's an introduction coolly entitled How to Prepare a Noble Savage. And in what he referred to as the laboratory of polite society. The feral children included Wild Peter of Hanover, the wild girl of Champagne, the wild boy of Aviron, those sorts of Things. Wild Peter was certainly seen by Jonathan Swift in 1726 before he wrote Gulliver's Travels. This little boy was found living a wild existence just outside of the Pied Piper's town of Hamlin. He was walking on all fours, unable to be taught any sort of working language. Nowadays he's thought to have been an example of the rare genetic disorder, the Pitt-Hopkins syndrome characterised by intellectual retardation, epilepsy 
classical facial features with very thin eyebrows and sunken eyes, a prominent nose, what's referred to as a cupid's bow of the lip, widely spaced teeth, and what the Italians call le labbra carnosa, the full bee-stung lips. These are now our appreciation of these remarkable 18th century phenomena. When Banks brought back Tupia from Tahiti, he intended, so he said, to keep him in the manner some of my neighbours keep lions and tigers, quote-unquote. According to Fox, when Duke Frederick II of Hessen Castle built an oriental village at Willemshoe, he fully intended to populate it with little Chinese children, but apparently none could be found. Instead, he dumped a mix of Africans there so that he could study their customs and their anatomy. You see, anatomy was a recognisable difference that defined for them the lower races, and I have no doubt in my mind that this was not just an elitism, but a real attempt to separate those who were considered to have enough development that they could be converted by evangelical missionaries to the basics of the faith. The rest would remain in their own limbo, so to speak, and were destined for enslavement. Anyway, most of Frederick's Africans died mainly of tuberculosis and one certainly committed suicide. Thomas van Simmering, the student of the greatest anatomist of the era, Bernard Siegfried Albinus, even dissected some of these Africans, one woman, one child and a couple of men, and he wrote über die Körperliche Verscheidenheit des Moren des Negers von Europäer concerning the physical difference between the Moor and the European, which he penned in 1785, based on those post-mortems. One of the other pieces of excitement of the living vivisection shows, which became particularly famous, if not notorious, by the French anatomist Francois Majondi. He would come to London every year in the 1830s and nail a live greyhound to a stake horrible, that exposed its spinal cord and in a ghastly experiment terrorised the animal by crushing the nerves as they entered the cord. It was said that Majondi was exhilarated by these appalling demonstrations and his cruelty became so legendary that members of the British Parliament railed against his entry into the country and one, Richard Martin, brought anti-vivisection laws to the floor of the house. King George IV was so impressed he gave Martin the moniker of Humanity Dick and Majondi was banned from displaying his horrific wares ever again. None of this was particularly new, however. The idea of vivisection was abhorrent to many, even if when it was established in 1660, the Royal Society of London seriously debated whether its position was to encourage vivisection of prisoners so that anatomy could be advanced. The famous 17th century experimenter Robert Boyle was so distressed by his kitten experiment that he gave it away. It had him suffocating them for a little while and then reviving them, but he was so disgusted by his research that he stopped. And so too his contemporary Robert Hooke, wanted to uncover the physiology of respiration by observing the rise and fall of the lungs in a vivisected dog. And he very nearly hit on a 17th century version of a mechanical respirator, but it called for him to transect the windpipe of the animal and insert a tube into it. 
and he simply couldn't bring himself to do it. The arguments about race too were nothing new. We can go back to the early 17th century and meet Edward Tyson and his remarkable book, The Anatomy of a Pygmy, replete with his drawings of chimpanzees where your eye is drawn to a particularly menacing illustration of monkey genitals. Tyson became the archetypal comparative anatomist reputedly dissecting a tortoise with his friend Hook in the London Lord Mayor's kitchen. His beginnings of fame came with his 1680 Anatomy of a Porpoise, the Foakina Anatomy of a Porpoise, dissected at Gresham College. His dissection eight years later of the female genitalia of an American opossum was an apparent triumph. But his work... His big work came in 1699, the orangutan, Sive Homo Silvestris, the anatomy of a pygmy, compared with that of a monkey, an ape and a man, was the title of the book. Well, really, the orang only became so named by the eponymous Petrus Camper, who we've met only eight years later, well after Tyson had died. Tyson never used the word to describe a man of the woods as it became known. The idea of a chimpanzee wasn't around as a word until 1738 and the gorilla was unknown until 1847. I have to thank my old professor of anatomy, now deceased Ken Russell, for that piece of information. Tyson himself in human anatomy is remembered these days more as a footnote, perhaps for describing the little glands around the penis. It's interesting to re-examine one of the most influential books before Charles Darwin's 1859 Origin of the Species, and that is The Anatomy of a Pygmy by Edward Tyson. It greatly influenced that other lion of evolution, Thomas Huxley. How ironic that Tyson was seven generations removed from Darwin, Tyson's maternal grandfather, Richard Foley, born in 1580 and died in 1657, had a great-granddaughter, Penelope, who was the great-grandmother of Charles Darwin. So there you are. Tyson became famous for his dissections of other species, as I've said, the porpoise, but also the rattlesnake, the beef tapeworm, the tenia saginata, as it's called, the opossum, and the Mexican muskhog. William Coleman, the biographer of the French naturalist Georges Cuvier, puts it particularly nicely in his study of the history of evolution theory that comparison by the 18th century became the sort of raison d'etre of anatomy rather than an accessory. The idea of comparison evolved into anatomy's primary aim 
comparison of species. Petrus Camper topped it off too with a 1779 book, An Account of the Organs of Speech in the Orangutan, and it expanded into an appreciation of the differences fundamentally between man and woman, which I've discussed on another podcast, not in the Anatomy Cupboard series, but in the final of the History of Anatomy podcast, The Genderization of Women, if you want to check that out. Perhaps culminating all in E.T. Moreau's 1750 essay, A Medical Question, whether apart from genitalia there is a difference between the sexes. What a great title. The early anatomists also believed that in the natives that they encountered, they were actually travelling back in time, where, quote, we can behold, as in a mirror, the features of our own progenitors, unquote, as Adam Ferguson, the Professor of Moral Philosophy at Edinburgh University put it in an essay on the history of civil society in 1767. These were the notions of the tribes people were encountering through their overseas travels. They were thought to be earlier versions of themselves. The Comte de Buffon, an esteemed naturalist of the time, wrote that civilization itself was bound up in how societies treated their women. Savages, he said, are tyrannical to them. This period was not only defining the new moral philosophy, but a type of humanism that dissected the role of individual humans in the broader society. The idea of moral and civil obligations, the tendency to draw together in Malthusian populations under Smith's economic conditions and in accordance to Hobbesian rules. It perhaps is little surprise that as these men and those like Kant were dissecting human nature, that the anatomists might feel obliged to dissect humans themselves, at least a little to define what the significance of being human was itself. But the tip of that spear turned sour, and soon enough the rules and aphorisms were considered the sacrosanct law that defined the civilised human being and the civilised society. Rather than an inclusory process, anatomy became the arbiter of exclusion that spawned the bunk of phrenology and the claptrap of physiognomy spouted by the Italians, the nonsense notion that the face bore the signals of uncivility and barbarism. Anatomy is much more than the consideration of how things fit and sit together in a body. Bill Bryson has just produced a wonderful book, The Body Illustrated, but he doesn't escape this geographical or relational domain. Anatomy is also the demarcation of the boundaries of humanity, what it is to be a human being. But it is, as we see these days, also the sexual differentiation of men and women, so obscured now by genders that drift well away from mere biological sex. Anatomy is here emotional, inclusive, and even a descriptor of the personal reaction by an individual to their own gender identity. It isn't so simple now, but then again, it it never was. Well, so much for the anatomy of a pygmy. Tyson used the term to separate it away from the man of the woods, the orang about whom Petrus Camper, the Praelector Anatomiae of Amsterdam, had spoken, although I'm not sure, dissected. 
Tyson was the first person to introduce nurses into the madhouse at Bedlam, Bethlehem Hospital, and he was markedly praised for it. He was also the first person in dissecting a chimpanzee to make the anatomical connection between what, what he had seen in human dissection with a non-human primate. But he surmised very clearly in his book that there might be pygmy humans as tribes. He entertains all of the known ancient literature on the subject and concludes at the end of his book that the stories such as they were were all nonsense. He wrote of the anatomy of what he called the Sinocephali, of the satyrs, of the sphinxes. But the pygmy races of Africa weren't actually discovered, if that's the right word, until the 19th century. In his day, Tyson's day, they were pure legend, and for their existence he relied on the fables of Homer rhapsodising in the original ancient Greek and of their interminable wars as told by Philocorus or Pliny, Aristotle, the physician Artaxerxes, Nonosus, the Emperor Justinian's ambassador to Ethiopia, the raconteur and historian Juvenal, and of course the great storyteller of ancient history, Herodotus. These were Tyson's search engines, if you will, for his appreciation of the pygmy races. Pliny the Younger had placed these pygmies at the Ganges Delta, but Aristotle had them at the apex of the Nile in Egypt. Homer had them a little further inland in Egypt and had suggested that they were exceptional archers, their houses made of mud, feathers and eggshells. This was, of course, the terrain of the anatomists, what they needed to know. But they are real, part of groups that live today in Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Cameroon, Equatorial Guinea, Angola, Botswana, Namibia, Zambia, and even Madagascar. I've been there a few times. I haven't heard of them there. But uh, they're supposedly in all of these places, and they're very real. The idea of the anatomists was to separate these mythical races and to inferiorise them, if that's the right word. It's hard now, I think, to imagine the impact this unusual book had on the ideas of the 19th century men of science like Darwin and Huxley, and even that old lion, Sir Richard Owen, who filled his Natural History Museum with fossils and first coined the term dinosaur, terrible lizard. Sir Tyson was not only a distant relative to Darwin, but he was also the one for whom I think a fair argument can be made who inspired the notion of an anthropoid evolution. Well, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.